It's the first Monday of the month. We're tackling Q&A on books and other topics, too. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 191. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly show to help leaders improve their communication, strategy, coaching, productivity, and personal mastery. And it is the first Monday of the month. Bonnie and I here are in studio, just barely, trying to recover from colds. And you've gotten the worst of it this time. I, I did get the worst of it as far as symptoms and illness goes. That's for sure. You got the worst of it as far as having to take care of two small children pretty much single-handedly for more than a week now. So... But in spite of that, major innovation on this show for us to talk about, way, way better. It's like the 2.0 version of the Q&A show, because this time, for the first time in recorded history, we have planned in advance who will answer the questions first. Yes. Yes. We haven't talked about what we will say, but we have talked about who will answer each question. I think that's really a pretty substantial innovation for people who have listened to the show before and listened to me go, do you want to go first? Should I go first? Well, and then I make a hand signal of some kind or shake my head and no one knows that I did it. And yeah, it's and the, we're moving up to professionalism here single-handedly or double-handed. Something like together. that. Mm. Hours of pe- minutes, seconds yes. of people's lives they can <laughs> yes. never get back. All right. Mm-hmm. So that said, we do have a lot of questions. I'm actually not sure we're going to get to all of them just based on our the number of questions we have. So if we don't get to yours... Uh, fear not. Uh, you can certainly send it in again, or we may hold it over for the next Q&A show. So, uh, and of course, you can always drop in comments on the show notes at coachingforleaders.com slash 191. So let's jump in since we do have a lot of questions here. And uh, we've got a few on books and a few on other things too. And I think this one's kind of related to both, Bonnie. This is a question from Allison. She asks, do you have any tips on improving business acumen? I watched a TED Talk from Susan Colantiuno. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. Am I, do you know how to pronounce that? No idea. I do not know who Susan is. Um, and I did not yet have a chance to listen to the TED Talk before we recorded here. Um, but she apparently states that the reason women have a difficult time advancing in their careers is because their business acumen is not strong enough. And she wants to know what our thoughts are on this. So I'll put a link in the show notes to the TED Talk. So for those who are interested, they can go check it out. Bonnie, I thought this might be a good one for you to tackle first. So since you are a professor of business and also happen to be a woman. Mm -hmm. With incredible business acumen, I might add. Of course, of course. (laughs) Well, I, you know, TED Talks, I really enjoy listening to them. And I have added this to my list, which I keep on a service called Pocket. It's a little digital pocket where I can put things that I want to read or watch. And I am terrible at ever actually following up. But this does look like a good one. And I do commit to watching it at some point. Having said that, the trouble with TED Talks is that what makes them so good is that they can just pack such a punch in such a short amount of time also is what makes them so bad because they oversimplify things. And I certainly don't think that we can say that why women have a difficult time in their careers is simply because of not having enough business acumen. Dave mentioned I'm a professor and I just 
right now, if you're not aware of what's happening in the higher ed landscape, there's a larger percentage of young women going to get their bachelor's degrees now. And they're really excelling in school. And there's a lot of theories as to people have put out there as to why and I don't want to go on too much of a rabbit trail here, other than to say, I see women that are graduating from college and going out into the workforce and really know their stuff. When it comes to some of the real complex things that I think are within, as women, our circle of control, or at the very least, our circle of influence, are having to do with how we were socialized not to negotiate in the same way in which men do. There have been a number of research studies that have shown that, for example, when we take our first job and we don't negotiate for that first salary, even if every other variable stays the same, just how much that puts us back in our career. And you can imagine there's more things than just that first salary negotiation that can compound that. So a couple of authors I'd suggest to you, one is Deborah Tannen, and Deborah Tannen is a linguist, and she has for decades now gone and studied people in the business environment and looked at how men communicate and how women communicate. And one of the things that I really resonated with in all of her books that I have read is the fact that we women were socialized from a very young age to really take things personally. And in the workplace, she talks about that the workplace was really a social environment that was constructed by men. And we have to learn to be more like men when it comes to that. And, and young boys, when they're on the playground, they get in a fight playing the basketball game. They brush themselves off and the next day they're best friends again and everything's fine. And we women can probably remember from young girls conflict that we had that went on a long time, or if we were even honest with ourselves, probably still exists in our imagination <laughs> when we think about those times as young girls. So I love Deborah Tannen. And speaking of not taking things personally, there's a wonderful book called The Four Agreements. And the four agreements are four agreements we can make with ourselves and with others to be at our most effective. And one of those agreements is to not take anything personally. It's a very, very quick read and a powerful read that helps us do that. Now I'm going to shift back to your original question. You thought I forgot it, didn't you? <laughs> well, it's funny. I was, I was, I was thinking to myself, I don't have anything to add, uh, and I'm also curious, like, if you had any suggestions for people who want to improve their business acumen. I mean, it's funny because you did ask about business acumen, uh -huh. and and I do think understanding the social context of the business environment is incredibly helpful to us as women. So I don't want to negate what I just said, but as far as what things that really help me learn the business acumen. First of all, we've got to be able to speak the language of business and that's accounting. So there, um, I tried to find a title of a book that helped me so well early in my career. It taught accounting, but did it all through the eyes of running a lemonade stand. And I just really liked that example. Oh, I'll try to do a little Googling after I, I tried a bit on Amazon. I did see one on Amazon that I benefited from. I'd, I'd say it's my number two pick is how to read a financial statement. But a lot of those books are pretty serious. And I liked the lemonade stand one because it was a little bit more fun and, and used a little bit more natural language to explain how to read the primary financial statements in a business. So that... Uh, that's something I would recommend is to find a book that will teach you about financial statements, teach you about accounting, but do it in a real natural storytelling type of way. The other thing I do is almost every day, listen to a 30 minute show called Marketplace and Marketplace is put on by APM American Public Media. 
And speaking of storytelling, oh my goodness, if I had had access to Marketplace when I was taking economics as an undergrad, it probably would have opened up my eyes just to how interesting the business world can be. It teaches everything about business. It's, it's, it's under the realm of economics, but you would never know it because they really tie in so much that happens. I mean, you can find out what's happening in the news, but it's not a political show and it's certainly not, they're not, they're known for being pretty unbiased, although they certainly will make, make, uh, have guests on or tell stories that have opinions to them, but it just really does a great job of connecting what's happening in the world in some really fascinating ways. So I couldn't recommend enough listening to Marketplace. And I've recommended that to some students who have actually followed up on that and hear all these years later, I'll still hear from them saying, I'm still listening. And it's making me so smart about what's happening in the business world. I'd, I'd say that's my number one pick as far as getting more business acumen and doing it in a fascinating and a time effective way. And I will second the Marketplace recommendation. I have listened to that very consistently over the years. Love that show. It's also available as a podcast. So it's one of the top podcasts on iTunes, actually. And I have a book recommendation because something you just mentioned reminded me that a couple of years ago, I forget who, but an organization or a couple of people put out a, a, a book, but it's also a website on the 100 best business books of all time. And it's 100bestbiz.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. And one of the sections in that uh, in that list is rules and scorekeeping. And there's a book that I have not read, but I've heard wonderful things about called Financial Intelligence by Karen Berman and Joe Knight. And that is supposed to be a very, very good book that is the kind of book that's both very powerful, but also written for the everyday person who does not have a degree in finance on how to... Um, well, the subtitle is A Manager's Guide to Knowing What the Numbers Really Mean. So if that's something that's important to you on knowing numbers and knowing language, I would certainly recommend it. A last piece of advice I have is to to try to really understand in whatever business you're in, or even just to become curious in general about the business world as a whole, what the different levers are. How do customers get acquired? How do customers get retained? And that wonderful view of looking at this for whatever business you're working for now or might be in the future is a book called Business Model Generation, a handbook for visionaries, game changers, and challengers. And it's a model that'll help you understand how a business gets constructed. How does it create value? How does it become profitable? And it's a great one. It's it's a workbook where you can kind of fill things in, but they have lots of different samples in it from all different kinds of industries and businesses. And if you're interested, there's also Business Model U, a one-page method for reinventing your career. So it, it flips it on its head and says, okay, well, now let's look at you as a business, as value that gets created for a company. And it's got a great, I own both of those books and refer to them multiple times a year. I loved business model generation too. Second that recommendation. Cool. So hopefully, uh, Allison, that gives you a few things to think about and to check out. And uh, a link for everyone is the 100 best business books. I'll put that on the show notes as well. Oh, and, and Bonnie has one more. Yeah, now we're done with the show. So thanks for listening. Yeah, well, you know, that was great. So we got our, we're 11 minutes in. We're not going to get to all these questions. So that's okay. That's okay. Thanks for good. listening. <laughs> Have a good week. All right, let's move on to our uh, audio comment actually from Susie. Hi, Dave. This is Susie. I'm a nurse leader from Pensacola, Florida. Now, as I've heard you mention on the show previously, I enjoy reading via audiobooks. 
Now my challenge is when I have a physical book, I'm able to go back and review, summarize, and reference my physical books, but I find this difficult when the only copy I have is in audio form. I'm curious how you manage this. Thanks for everything that you're doing. I appreciate you tremendously and tell Bonnie hi. You just told me yourself. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like the first thing I should say to you is, Hello. Hi. <laughs> hi, Susie. How are you? Good to hear from you. Uh, yeah. Well, the short answer, Susie, is I don't manage this very well. And I'm not sure that there's a ideal system out there. I'm curious what Bonnie will say too. Um, unlike me, Bonnie does not listen to audiobooks, so she'll have a little different um, framework on this. I do use Audible as my mostly primary way to uh, read, although I also use Kindle for things that I want to read. Um, if, I, if I'm if i going to read something that I get the sense that is going to be something that I do want to highlight a lot, uh, for example, I just read a book on copywriting, which is a skill I want to get better at of how to uh, be more effective at communicating a message and influencing through my writing. That was something I knew that I was probably going to uh, have a lot of notes on. So I actually bought that on a Kindle and, um, and that, that tr- turned out to be true and I read it that way. On the Audible app, at least on the iPhone, there is an option where you can, as you're listening, you can tap a note button and you can either leave a bookmark or you can actually type in something right there. And then you can go back later and find the place you can look up your bookmarks and your notes. The thing that is sort of limiting for me on that, when I first found that feature, I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to use that all the time. And I used it a couple of times and then I don't really end up using it because still I don't have the actual text in front of me. And for me, it's helpful to see in context of where that text is. Um, I I don't want to go back and listen to the audio. So I seem to remember, does this sound familiar to you, Bonnie, like that Amazon was thinking about or had something about maybe where you bought an audiobook uh, where you could get the the Kindle version too or something? I feel like there was something like that at one point that maybe was going to happen. I haven't heard anything about that though. I just hear it's discounted, severely discounted, but that's all I've heard. And there have been books. Well, one another thing to say is there have been books that I have bought both the audio version and the hard copy or the Kindle version because it was an important book that I knew I'd go back and reference How to Win Friends and Influence People is one example of that. I have a couple of different versions because I reference that book all the time and I want to have it in a couple of different places. So that's, that's certainly one option. The other thing that I'll do is if I'm listening to audio, is if I hear something that I find significant, I'll often back up, I'll listen to it again, and I'll record it on my phone in OmniFocus or Drafts or somewhere where then I can go capture that later or look it up. Because usually a Google search, if you have enough of the words, will pick up the information in the book. But I don't think there's a perfect system for this. I would love to have a digital library that I could have everything I've ever read be searchable by full text. I mean, if Amazon ever did something like that, I would pay good money for that. I, you well, probably would too. And if you could push the button when you were listening to the audio and it would highlight that in the digital searchable, readable text, that'd be incredible. It, it would. And if anyone knows of a system like that, um, I we are all for it. So if we're if we're missing the boat here on something, by all means, uh, put in a put a comment on the show notes or send an email. We'd love to hear about it. Bonnie, how do you handle this? You do more reading on your Kindle app on your iPad yeah. almost exclusively, right? So you can save things. Is there anything you do that's helpful as far as just capturing information or organizing things and notes later? No, I, it's the same things that you already said. So, and I just don't have the attention span for audiobooks. So I don't think I will be necessarily helpful on this question, but I'm up for going on to Frank's question. Yeah. All right. Great. So let's uh, let's move on. Hope that's helpful a little bit, Susie. And again, if anyone knows of a better solution for that, gosh, I'd love to know too. 
Frank asks, I work in supply chain for a large healthcare system, and I'm often asked to lead project teams. So I'm finding the advice very helpful. I find that the coaching skills I can learn can often be applied to either teaching 14-year-old girls, the great game of softball, which often crosses into life lessons, or managing 40-year-old professionals on a project team. So with that in mind, may I suggest the book Coaching the Mental Game by H.A. Dorfman? Although it's a sports coaching-centric book, so much of it can be applied in other coaching roles, and it's thought of as the gold standard of sports coaching books. Dave, I know you had something to add in on this. I did, and I'm glad to know about this book because I was not familiar with it, so I will definitely check it out. And I mentioned in the Weekly Leadership Guide last week that I read a book early on in my career that also was a sports coaching book, actually for coaching sports team, kids' sports teams, called Positive Coaching. So the thought, uh, the uh, mention about girls softball made me think about it. Uh, Positive Coaching by Jim Thompson, which is also a great read and lots of applications to the workplace. And I did want to add in something here too, Bonnie. This is not because of Frank, but just as another thought because this came up is I think there's a lot we can learn from the sporting world that's applicable in the business world from a standpoint of coaching. And I think one of the biggest things is that anytime you see a top athlete, they always have a coach. They always have someone who's working with them, um, if not one-on-one in a team format where someone is helping them to get better, challenging them. And I think that's something that in some places in the business world, you see the expectation that that happens. But there's also a lot of places in business where it's not necessarily part of the culture where everybody gets coached, even the top people. And so I think that that's a really positive attribute that we get from the sports coaching world that we should look to. On the same token, the warning would be is um, be cautious if you introduce books or models that are sports models to people in the business world, because those who don't either um, like sports or really know very much about sports, some there's a tendency, I think, sometimes for people who like sports a lot to um, overuse sports analogies and things like that. And people who don't have that framework, sports analogies are really lost on and can often feel like outsiders. So just be cautious of that if you're using a sports model or a coaching model with a team and you're using a book like this just to be real conscious of that to make sure you're bringing in other analogies and other examples too. So that's enough about that. Um, I'll put links to both of those in the notes. Frank, thank you so much for the recommendation. And our next question here is from... Jignesh. And actually, it was, um, I'll just uh, say this one verbally, uh, Bonnie, he had forwarded me a email exchange uh, from internally in his office. So I I don't want to share the personal details. But one of the things he was really curious about to know from us was he was trying to understand the personality type of someone else on his team that he was working with and understand more about that person's personality in order to work with them more effectively. And so what he decided to do was to, he was familiar with one of the personality assessments. I don't remember which one, but he had sent this person a link and said, would you please take this personality assessment so that I can learn more about you and understand how to work with you better? And he got the response from the other person who said, well, you can't really just ask someone to take a personality assessment. It's kind of like asking someone how much they weigh or, you know, you know, how much do you make? It's it's just one of those personal things that until you've really established a lot of trust with with someone, and I would say even if you have a lot of trust with someone, it's a little odd probably to ask someone to take a personality assessment unless you're doing it as far as a large um, business, you know, everyone's doing it kind of a thing. So what he was wondering is what are some ways maybe I can find out about a person's personality without necessarily asking someone to take an assessment since that wasn't that didn't work in this case and I would argue is not going to work in most cases. And 
I emailed him back and I thought this is something that would be interesting for us to talk about here on the show and see if you have any thoughts, Bonnie. But my suggestion was, you know, if you're curious about how a person works with information or data, and that was one of the things he was wondering about is, you know, how do you, how does this person like to have information presented to them is just to ask. So how do you like to have information presented to you? What, what formats do you prefer? You could even potentially, depending on the project, you could share a few examples of ways you could present information or ask a person what their preference is as far as how you communicate with them. That is the kind of thing that strikes me as just kind of more casual conversation, but you can also learn a lot from. So you can still get the same kind of information about what how a person likes to interact and what their preferences are without necessarily asking a much more personal question. So, um, and And it even goes with leadership, learning, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, I think a great question to ask is if you get to, if you start working with someone, how do you like to get feedback? How do you like to, um, how do you like to people to work with you? How do you like to be recognized? Those are great questions for leaders to ask. It doesn't mean people are always going to know the answers to that or that they can articulate it, but just having a conversation about some of those things up front in a relationship can be really helpful. And you don't have to go through a process of doing something more formal. In some cases, the casual things even better. So Bonnie, I don't think you have anything else to add on that. So we'll jump over to the next question here. And this is actually a recommendation from Jamie. And uh, Bonnie, I think you were going to read this one, right? Jamie wrote, a really good book that I used with my team was The Thin Book of Trust, An Essential Primer for Building Trust at Work by Charles Feltman. And Dave, there'll be a link to that in the show notes, we can all assume. Of course. I had my entire team read it, and then we discussed it. A big benefit is that it's short but power-packed. It helped my team in four ways. The first one, the book does a great job of discussing well-formed requests, the goal, the deadline, and the conditions for success. In the first two, my team did really well with the deadline and the conditions, or sorry, the goal and the deadline. But the last one was an area we struggled with, me as well as several of my team members. Thus, we talked about ensuring that we dealt with the conditions for success rather than making assumptions if the conditions are not specified to ask. And boy, what a great thing to have come out of reading this book together Mm -hmm. is have a new language for trust around what is success going to look like. We've talked about that before on the show, and that's just such an important thing to do. You're so right, Jamie. There's so many assumptions that, that can be a foundation around things like that that can really break trust over the short term and the long term. Second thing that Jamie liked about the book is it did a good job about acknowledging how commitments should be made rather than assumed or implied. The classic example is when everyone is in a meeting, a task is discussed vaguely and walking away from the meeting, everyone believes someone is going to do the task except the person who everyone else thinks is supposed to do the task. So the book emphasized how well-formed requests and explicit commitments can bolster trust. Trust is negatively affected if the requests are not well-formed and commitments are not explicit to everyone, particularly the one with a task. The book breaks trust into sincerity, reliability, competence, and care. Seeing it broken down this way helped me and my folks analyze and fix some areas within our team where trust was broken, and it also helped each person understand the reason for the lack of trust in certain people. The book even provides suggestions for how to repair trust in an approachable way. This is going on my list of books to read. It sounds fabulous. Yeah, it really does. Had you heard about this book before? No. uh -uh. No, I hadn't either. So thanks, Jamie, so much for not only the suggestion, but taking time to uh, 
walk us through how your team benefited. And I'll put his full text here that he sent us up on the show notes, because uh, I think that there's a lot here that will be a good roadmap for people who check out this book. So thank you, Jamie, for the recommendation. We really appreciate it. And uh, let's move on to uh, this question from Michael. And this, this question's uh, timely, uh, came in just this week. Um, Michael asks, hi, Dave, I had a valuable experience this week. I reside in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Virginia metro area, and I mentor a young man who resides in Baltimore. In the wake of the recent riots, he called me at 10 p.m. on Monday night and asked what I should do. He was unsure whether he should be on the streets protesting or whether he should stay home and watch. Now, I coach these young men to be responsible, but also to be true to their instincts for doing what is right. In this case, however, I was torn between advising what was responsible, which in my opinion would be to stay home, and what was right, which was to join the protesters. I asked him what he felt Martin Luther King would do in this situation. His reply was that Dr. King would join the protesters and still abide by the law. I said, that's what you should do. Coaching and mentoring can be tough at these times. Any comments? Well, Michael, my first comment is that I agree with you entirely. Coaching and mentoring can be difficult in any situation and particularly in a situation like this that's so complicated and brings up so much about society and sociology and political things that are going on in our country right now. Um, So as far as comments on the situation itself and the coaching aspect of it, um, first of all, I don't think either of us know the answer to this question and the answer would be different for every individual. I think the one thing that is I wonder about, and obviously I don't. I only know the context of the situation of what you've written here, but I wonder. I'm thinking back to the show last week when Tom Henschel was on and talked about the analogy of with coaching meeting someone where they are, and so I wonder where the about your question about Martin Luther King. I wonder if that was something that he's brought up before in conversation in thinking about issues in regards to race and sociology and protest and all of the things that it sounds like you all have had maybe had some conversations about in the past. So I wonder if that was his framework or if that was yours. And the reason I ask is, is you, it sounds like from the question, I don't know this, but it sounds like you brought in Martin Luther King as kind of the framework for how he should be thinking about this. And what I wonder is, based on the conversations you've had with him previously of his values, of the person that he admires and that he believes in and his belief system of how is Martin Luther King one of those people? And if not, what are the people, the values, the things that he believes in that you could remind him about at a time like this in order to maybe help him to understand with his own value set, what choices that he might make. And then to the extent that you can meet him there, potentially guide him somewhere different if that's what he's looking for. And I don't even know if it's a coaching situation, Bonnie, because it's just more of a It's complicated. (laughs) It's complicated. I've been thinking about this so much as all of these issues have been just engulfing our nation and really touched particularly by people that have written about speaking to their children. This is particularly African-American mothers or fathers who have written about having to tell their children how to behave around police officers and how different that conversation will be and already is for Dave and I with our two very small young children. But Dave just took the kids to a little water conservation event put on here. And there was a fire truck there. And he said he got to speak to some of the firefighters and that kind of thing. And I suspect that had there been police officers there as well, the conversation would have been very similar that you were able to have with Luke at the table with them. So I mean, it's it is we are very 
I mean, maybe not very, maybe very is too uh, firm of a word. We are aware of our white privilege, Dave and I. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we need to name and recognize that we couldn't possibly know what it would be like to be in some of these communities or to be African-American and having conversations with people we're mentoring or with our own children, mentoring and coaching conversations we're having with our own children. So I feel very ill-equipped to have discussions of race in my classroom. I could go on a tangent, but I won't. I'll spare everyone listening other than to say, when we feel ill-equipped doesn't mean we get the cop out and we get to stop. And my friend Sandy always tells this wonderful story about this Greek pottery that she got to see so much when she lived in Greece for more than 10 years. And it's designed to carry more than a thousand pounds of grain. It's called a pithari. And it has handles all over it because no one person can carry a thousand pounds of grain. So she's always coaching people to say, well, what's your handle? Because what part of it are you going to lift and carry? So when I look at something as complex as what's going on in our country around um, race relations, I don't get to just say, hmm, too hard. Can't really relate. (laughs) We're, We're not confronted with this very directly here. We're not near any of the places where this has happened. So I give up. We have to find where our handle is, even if we feel ill-equipped. I just want to commend you, Michael, and say thank you for asking a hard question. I think about, in addition to the fact that I would say Dave and I have white privilege and, and are aware of that, we also have grown up in America, both of us, which has a very individualistic culture. And you asked a very collectivist question because if I was only thinking about myself or you're only thinking about this young man that you're mentoring, of course he's going to stay home. Of course he's going to stay home because that's where he'll be the safest. And that's the best place for him to be if he is thinking about himself. If he's going to think about being some small part, what his handle is for lifting this nation up and making the change that needs to happen and thinking about his community He is going to go out there and risk. And you asked a powerful question. And it's, yeah, my comments are clumsy as compared to the powerful question you asked. So thank you for doing that. And I I hope you'll continue to do that with others and also with him. I don't have anything to add to that. And I love your answer much better than mine. So there we go. Let's go on to our next question. Uh, Let's see. We have, actually, we are going to get through a lot. Uh, Let's go to Abigail. So Abigail emailed me and was wondering, how do we develop a methodology with drastic ideas to stop doing things, uh, meaning mostly tasks or do things differently? And she adds that um, we're having to cope with workload, there being less of us uh, in her organization. There's probably some tasks we're duplicating and other tasks such as reports that aren't necessary anymore. Uh, she also mentioned she just finished reading the book Essentialism, which I've also read and recommended a great book. And I see there are a few ideas that we could put into practice. So let's tackle this first one. Uh, first, Giovanni, um, my thoughts on this are, you know, how do you how do you tackle what's non-essential? And it's interesting you mentioned essentialism because one of the the principles in that book is I think what he calls and I I had not heard this term before, but zero based budgeting. I think that's the term where you um, the kind of the classical way in a lot of organizations and institutions to figure out where what are we going to do next year or next quarter or whatever the time frame is 
is let's start with the framework of what happened last year. So let's start with if you got 150,000 budget for last year on this, that's kind of your starting number for this year. And then you negotiate up and down from there. So in essentialism, McEwen argues that um, start from zero. So rather than beginning from just because you've had a budget for this one item for the last six years, doesn't necessarily mean that you should have that budget again and and that everyone starts from zero. So you have to justify each line item in your budget. Now I'm, I'm using a financial example here, but you could do the same thing with tasks. So if you, for example, looked at an organizational organization's task or statement of work or job description, you could start from the beginning and rather of saying, well, just because this is what we've done all during this time, let's actually take an inventory of everything we're doing. Let's start and then let's you know clean the plate and clean the plate. What the word? Blank slate. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> clean the plate. Start from a blank slate. We're about to go on our date night after this yes. and have some good dinner. Yes, You're already are. thinking about yes, it. Yes, we are. So, um, so you know, take everything. Maybe get everything down on a list, but then start with a new list and say, okay, what are we going to bring over this year? You know, not, and we're not just going to automatically bring it over because we've done it in the past. I think that that's a really helpful exercise. And it's articulated in the book for people who are trying to do just just this, where you've had an organizational culture for whatever reason that it's the time to do a little housekeeping and figure out what's what's worth keeping and what maybe isn't. And then I think it's easier for it not to be as personal because then it's not we're just attacking um, we're not we're not just attacking Jane's line line item of what her team's been doing over a year or two. We are looking at everyone's. Everyone needs to go through the process of starting from the beginning and justifying what they're doing or not. Now, obviously, depending on your organization, that can be a very complicated thing to do and bring a lot of organizational politics along with. But that's one place to start is just a little different than what most organizations do. One of the things to recognize is that you really have two jobs here. One job is, yes, figuring out what the workload should look like, what tasks could go away and not have too great of an effect. So there's the process-oriented piece of it. But there's also the cultural change. And in the my experience, and I have been with a number of organizations or worked with a number of organizations where boy, when, when people start to see that loss, there's layoffs or just reorganizations that leave you perceiving that you're being asked to do the same workload with less people, that can really start to get reinforced in all of our minds. I can sit there and be a part of that team and say, that wasn't fair. That's not the call I would have made. I would have done that different. And we can start coming up with all these reasons why it's impossible to do what we're being asked to do. And it really starts to sort of feed on itself. And I tell you that, and then you tell someone else that we start talking about that in our meetings and we start reinforce a real slowdown of our productivity and a real slowdown of our innovation too. And this can be so difficult, especially depends what level this is at happening at in an organization or the type of department that you're speaking of. So there's all these factors I'm not familiar with, but recognize you're really doing some culture change. And one thing that you could try to do is try to get some energy with, let's create a gigantic list and freely open up the floor that says, nothing's off the table here. Let's list off everything that feels like it's a waste of time. And come prepared with some of your own so that you can really reinforce, no, this is really an open conversation. Let's get it listed up on the whiteboard. Let's maybe even have, after we go through the list once, then maybe there's the, boy, this is just an easy no-brainer. Nothing would happen. No one ever does anything with this to, mm, 
could be a problem, maybe not. Or gosh, now that we look at it, we don't like it, but this should really stay because it's central to our organization. And just even that exercise of doing that and then having that where there's some sort of ceremonial thing around, look at this that we're not going to do anymore, but we got to knock these then out of the park. What are the three most important things that you deliver every week in your role? Or what are the three most important things that us as a department delivers every week? How can we make these even better? If we could free up our time with these things that we just got rid of, how can we add even more power to the contributions that we're making? I love it. And another, speaking of books, another resource, if you find yourself at this place, which uh, I think she may be, is your organization is just about to go through a change, is the book Leading Change by John Cotter. It's a really strong eight-step model of how to take an organization through a change and how to do it in a way that the change doesn't, you know, just revert back to what you were doing six months later. So um, really, uh, really a good book and a good model for that. So check that out if that's helpful too. And the second question she asked Bonnie was, how can we manage our relationships with our internal and external suppliers and vendors? And it sounds like this has become an issue because um, they're outsourcing more. So they don't need to be as skilled on the technical issues as much, but now actually handling the issues that are coming from some of their external partners. And it, it, you know, it's interesting you mentioned this. I think this is something that's becoming a lot more common for organizations. I can tell you right now, uh, one of our Dale Carnegie clients is facing this exact same reality where they've outsourced a lot more. And now the people who used to be the technical experts at handling a lot of things all of a sudden have become the people who are now managing many of, many of those vendor relationships. And that's a really different job than doing the work yourself. So you might go to the same place, you might talk to the same people on a daily basis, you might have the same desk, but the kind of work you're doing is really different. So you're not solving the problem yourself anymore. You're now managing the relationship with the vendor. And one of the things the organization we're working with is finding is that the skill set that people need is really different. So it's not the technical skills are still important to be able to speak the language with vendors, but what's really becoming important is how well people communicate the people skills that they have, the presentation skills, the ability to manage conflict. And so one of the things, if you aren't already thinking this, is to start doing some thinking and some strategy in your organization of, of how do we assess where our people are on those, on those areas? Um, how do we identify what are the key skills that they need in order to be successful in that new type of a role? And then what are you and your organization going to do in order to help people to get better at that and to improve that skill set? And I think that if you are conscious of those things, you'll start asking the questions and getting the answers that will lead you toward that answer for your organization as far as where the gaps are and also where the strengths are of your people that you can leverage in great ways. Thank you, as always, to Bonnie for your wisdom and taking the time to uh, share your thoughts with us. And a lot of resources here, as you may imagine. So I've captured all of them, done my best at least to capture all of the books and recommendations we mentioned in the show notes. So check those out at coachingforleaders.com slash 191. One other link that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago is since we're on the topic of books, I mentioned in this episode, I do use Audible and we have an affiliate relationship with Audible. So if you'd like to try out the Audible account and get a, in addition to getting a free month of 
service with Audible, you get two free books. So if you've heard about a book here that you think might be of value to you to investigate further, that's a great place to start. And the best way to get access to that, the first free month and two free books, is to go to coachingforleaders.com slash audible. And if you do that, it will uh, get you access to that right away. And thanks in advance if you decide to do that, because that helps support the show as well. And speaking of supporting the show, the next Q&A show is coming up the first Monday of June. It'll be episode 195. Already have a few questions that came in late for this show that we weren't able to air, but um, I'll definitely consider those for the next show. But the topic for the next show will be self-confidence. So if you've ever wondered what you can do in order to enhance your self-confidence or potentially to enhance the self-confidence of others, we'll tackle questions on that on episode 195. And of course, any question is always fair game. So coachingforleaders.com slash feedback is where to go for that. And then one final link is that I am collecting all of the resources, the top books, and things that guests mention on an ongoing basis. And so if you're just looking for a resource in a particular topic area, say, for example, like sales or presenting or something like that that's in a general category, go to coachingforleaders.com resources, and you'll see an ongoing list there that I'm continuing to add to. And uh, that'll be a great place to start. But of course, if you can't find something, feel free to send in a question for the next Q&A show. And while you're online, I hope you'll join my weekly leadership guide. It's delivered to your inbox on Wednesdays and includes my thoughts and recommendations on the best articles, podcasts, videos, books, and other resources online that will support your development. And it also includes the link to the show notes each and every week, and especially helpful on these Q&A shows, all of the links we'll mention will be in there. That's always at the bottom of the coaching guide each week. So if you go all the way to the bottom, you'll see the graphic for the show and then the link to get to that. And if you listen on the go like I do, it'll help you to follow up on the resources we mentioned in each show. And when you subscribe, you'll get access also to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others. We didn't even mention any of those in today's episode, I don't think. Um, So definitely that's a great starting point as well. And I've also included a brief summary for me on the value of each book and why you would want to check out each one. So definitely check that out if that's something that is of interest to you in doing some more reading. And uh, there's a video that goes along with that. So if you'd like to get access to that, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And I also wanted to say a big thank you this week to uh, the person with the uh, screen name SPTIP. And I actually know who that is. So Sam, thank you so much for taking a moment to write a review on iTunes for the show. If these Q&A shows have been helpful to you, or if other episodes uh, between the Q&A shows are helpful to you, I hope you'd take a moment to go on iTunes if you use iTunes and rate the show or even write a very brief review. It is super helpful on attracting more people to the community of us continuing to put more resources in the show. And if you've never done that, if you take a moment this week to do that, I would be so grateful. Just go to coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes. And by the way, for those of you who use Stitcher, we continue to have more and more people find the show on Stitcher. You can also leave a review there, coachingforleaders.com slash Stitcher. 
Thanks so much for your support. I look forward to talking with you again next Monday. Take care.